Galatians chapter 6, starting with verse 11. And Paul writes here, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, or for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Lord, we ask again now for your spirit to speak through your word, and we know that you will, because you're faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're to the final verses uh, of this epistle that Paul wrote to the Galatians, and if you're visiting with us today, we're glad to have you, or if you haven't been here in a while, just by way of you know, quick review, you know, Paul penned this letter, or, or, or had this letter penned, which we'll talk about in just a second, uh, because of the fact that the Galatian church, which had been radically saved, soundly saved, transformed, changed, and had received just the grace and the forgiveness uh, of salvation. You know, you might remember when you first got saved, those of you that first, uh, first saved, you remember how the guilt was lifted from your shoulders, and you felt that freedom to say, wow, uh, I was under this condemnation of my sin or, or uh, the fear of death or uh, what happens if I had to meet God face to face or all of these things. But then you experience just grace that, that God forgave us, not that we did anything to deserve it, uh, we didn't earn it. And the Galatians had received the free gift of salvation and it had done a transforming work. I'll never forget, you know, years ago, I remember hearing uh, Chuck Swindoll on the radio. Some of you probably listened to Chuck Swindoll on the radio. And i never forget him saying, it's something that stuck with me for years now. He said, the most holy people that I've ever met are those that truly understand grace. Because people that really understand grace don't say, well, since I have all this grace, I can do whatever I want. Or because I have all this grace, I'm really holy now or something. No, real grace makes us humble, but also very appreciative, but also makes us obedient to Christ. Real grace has that kind of work. And so we can't make ourselves holy, but God actually does a work of purification in us, and it's all because we've received grace. Well, the Galatians had been resting in that grace, but if you remember from the beginning of this letter... Paul was shocked that they had soon turned away from the simplicity of salvation, from the simplicity of the gospel, and they had been introduced by people that had come probably from Jerusalem, but we don't know exactly where they came from. Uh, we know that they were Jewish and that they were trying to reintroduce to the Galatian church the law, that they had to start eating certain foods, that they had to celebrate certain days over others, certain feasts, whatever it may be, that they had to be circumcised if they were Gentile men, all of these kind of things, and, and this was putting on them a bondage that the gospel had never been placed upon them. In fact, the apostles uh, in the book of Acts, they had actually had a council of all the apostles, Peter and James and John and Paul and Barnabas had actually come to that, and it was determined that, that no, nothing would be put on uh, the church nothing as far as the, uh, the ceremonial aspects of the Jewish law, but that they would just follow the Lord and abstain from sexual sin and a few other things, that it was just simply that they would walk in Jesus and grow in the Holy Spirit. And there wasn't, uh, there wasn't uh, this laundry list of things that they had to do that were tasks. Say, if you didn't do this, you couldn't be saved. And basically they were told, you know, your grace, grace in Jesus, you know, the whole Jesus thing, that's good, but it's not enough. You've got to follow the law of Moses. And so Paul had written this letter uh, to turn them back to the simplicity of the faith because grace will help us to walk in the Lord. It, it, won't, it won't cause us to just 
do our own thing or won't cause us to be puffed up in spiritual pride and say, you know, we're really holy and these people over here are not. But that's what religion does. Religion always kills, but the relationship with Jesus gives life. And this is why Paul wrote the letter, and now it's coming to the conclusion of this letter. And you see in verse 11, he says, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. I don't know if uh, you pull this up here, but um, what Paul is saying, I've titled here in verse uh, 11, if you're taking notes, I've titled this The Appeal. And by the way, the, the name of uh, this study this morning, The Heart of Us and the Church, The Heart of Us and the Church. And the reason why I say of us and the church, I know that we are the church, but we also have an individual walk. But then we have a collective walk. So, you know, I have a thumb, which is part of me, but it also is just a thumb. And it's all part of uh, the body that God's given me, and you are part of the body that God has made into the church. But individually, God wants the same heart in you and I individually as he wants in the church collectively. And we'll look at four things there this morning, starting in verse 11, which I've uh, titled The Appeal. Uh, Paul makes this personal appeal uh, in verse 11, and he, he mentions these large letters that he's written with. A very common practice um, in the ancient world was for those with an authoritative position, uh, as Paul's was, he had an authoritative, uh, had an authoritative position within the church, uh, that if you had this authoritative position, it was common in ancient times that you would have someone that was like an administrative assistant. And that administrative assistant would write what was dictated. So Paul would speak, and a scribe would actually be writing what Paul was saying. And so the majority of Paul's letters were dictated by him. Matter of fact, he, he didn't have, uh, he wasn't writing them himself, but a majority of them were dictated, and a scribe or an assistant, rather than Paul himself, was sitting there with a calamus, which was, which was a pen in those days. You know, you had the, uh, um, a reed pen, and they would dip it in ink. It was called a calamus. Or you have uh, then the charta, or the parchment sheets. And so the assistant would be writing as Paul would be saying, now tell them this. Now write this down. Now write this down. And so the assistant or the scribe would be writing as Paul is dictating. Now we know definitively, without question, from the end of the book of Romans, um, and if you want to just write in your notes, uh, the end of the book of Romans, but we can see from the beginning of the uh, letter to the Romans, when Paul wrote to the Roman church, in verse 1 of Paul's letter to Rome, it said, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and separated unto the gospel. So Paul, in the opening to the book of uh, Romans or the letter to the Romans, he says, Paul. In other words, this letter's coming from me, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. At the end of Romans, in the 16th chapter, which is the final chapter of the letter, we see this in, in verse 22. I, Tertullus, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. So Tertullus is the scribe that was actually writing the letter, but Paul makes it clear from the first verse, I, Paul, am sending you this letter, but I have an assistant... Chapter 16, verse 22, he names who he actually is. Now, that doesn't happen in other places, but in that case, we actually know who actually was doing the writing, but we know who was doing the dictating. Uh, and so this was a common thing. Uh, Tertius, or Tertius, uh, he gets a shout-out, if you will, for helping out in the writing. And for some reason, the Holy Spirit says, you've done such a great job, your name's going to be forever in the Bible. You've done such a great job. And both, by the way, those of you who are sidekicks in this world, assistants, you're very valuable. My wife has said for a year that she's better sidekick than she is a kick. Um, so I do the kicking and she, uh, no, not, not in the house or anything like that, just uh, as far as terminology, you know. But, you know, assistants are very valuable. People that are your right-hand person, people that uh, are helping you get a job accomplished. And so God makes, a, makes mention there the fact that someone doing the writing is very important as well. But as hard as Paul worked, and I don't know, in, in the history of the world, he's probably one of the hardest working people the world has ever seen. But as hard as Paul worked and as hard as he served the Lord, 
having this assistant doing the writing probably saved valuable energy for Paul's praying, for studying, for teaching, for preaching, for traveling, for pouring into other people. I'm sure he saw great value in having someone at his side to do some of the administrative thing, to write while I speak it out to you. And there have been times I'm sure he was weak, especially as he started to get up in age. And by the way, Paul would have loved a laptop probably. <laughs> so much easier. You know, now that I have a laptop, I can think back, you know, you watch... Uh, or you go back and you look at history, and these guys that wrote books that were this big and they wrote them, you're like, I have a great level of respect for them. <laughs> Sitting there, dabbing the ink, doing it again. Oh, messed up. That one's gone. Do this all over again. I just backspace, backspace, you know, a whole lot easier. But also, um, you know, having these assistants, uh, just understand, uh, they're all throughout the Bible. People that are assisting the prophets, people that are assisting, you know, Joshua was, with it, was there assisting Moses long before he actually became uh, the man that God would use to lead. And if you right now are assisting, know that God's using you and growing you as you assist others. And we've got people over in the children's ministry right now that are serving as assistants. I have two teenage daughters that are right now over there assisting with two classes. And you can learn a lot when you're assisting people, can't you? Imagine if you were assisting. Uh, Thomas Edison, right? And just watching every day the way they go through thinking. Or you're sitting, you're assisting George Washington Carver, and you were there when, when he made peanut butter for the first time, right? <laughs> it would have blow your mind. What a great invention. Anyway, I, last week it was okra. Today it's peanut butter. Who knows where it'll go from here? But God brings these people along, and and they refresh and they help us in our life. And so Paul has this assistant, but even though he has an assistant, and even though he has someone helping him write this, he says, see with what's large letters I have written with my own hand. Paul did uh, dictate most of the letters, but he was often at the end of the letter, this was uh, very common for him, near the end of the letter, he would often write a salutation with his own hand. We see this is actually specifically mentioned at the end of 1 Corinthians. It's mentioned in the book of Colossians, and it's mentioned in 2 Thessalonians. So on three other occasions, four total, he actually mentions, oh, by the way, the ending was actually my handwriting. The last few verses, the salutation, the parting words, Paul would say, hey, uh, assistant, can you give me the pen? I want to finish the last couple of paragraphs. I've got enough strength to do that, or I just want to make sure they see my personal touch in the letter. And here he also mentions these large letters in addition to him writing the last few uh, paragraphs or sentences. Now, you and I might think of it in texting or sending an email in all caps. You know, when you see that on the web, it's like, stop shouting, you know, that kind of thing. This is kind of an all caps thing. He's... Uh, doing this, as most scholars believe, for added emphasis and making sure that they understand how important what they're receiving is. Christian, Paul finishes this, and he makes sure that they understand a couple of things. One, he makes sure that he writes so they know that, yes, I've dictated, but the whole heart of this is coming directly from me. That's why he's writing. And he writes with these large letters at the end, we believe, to add how important it is. And some appeals in life have to be personally from us. Some appeals have to be personally from you and I. We can't always delegate everything to someone else. Some things we have to be the one to communicate the message. We have to be the one to express the urgency. We have to appeal at times when it's not somebody else. You can't always have someone else do that. Sometimes it has to be us. Now, Paul is a spiritual father. Uh, he was a father to many churches uh, that he had planted, including the Galatians and the Galatian church here. And sometimes, uh, I'm speaking to men here, sometimes as fathers, Paul was a spiritual father, sometimes it really does have to be us as the dads. It has to be the man. It can't always be mom delivering the spiritual message. True? It can't always be mom. Paul 
was a spiritual father, and he was the one who said, I, I need you to know how important this is, and it's coming directly from me. And sometimes, uh, you know, father images or father figures, they might be spiritual fathers, it might be pastors, but it's not just for those uh, in those positions, it's for others. But fathers, God's given a special uh, role that fathers are to lovingly encourage Fathers are to strengthen. Fathers are to warn. Fathers are to pray over. Fathers are to protect. This is, a, this is written in other parts of the New Testament specifically, but in the Old Testament as well. Fathers are there to guide. This isn't a Father's Day message. I'm just emphasizing the fact that you know Paul was a spiritual father, and he understood how important it was that they had this personal appeal from him. Some kids... Of, of some Christian dads, especially older ones, uh, they might fall out of their chair and be shocked and silent if their dad actually picked up the phone and called them and said, God put you on my heart. God put you on my heart. Is this mom call? I'm, I could see mom doing this, but dad? You just said the word God and heart in the same sentence? God put you on my heart, and I wanted to call and see how you're doing, and could I pray for you? I'm telling you, all across this country, in Baptist churches, in Methodist churches, in Presbyterian churches, and all over the country, there'd be kids on the other end that would be shocked if their dad picked up the phone and actually called and says, you've been on my heart, I've been praying for you, can I talk? I'm telling you. I know it. I see it all the time. We go into these youth correctional men and don't even know their fathers. Paul was a spiritual father. He said, you need to know I personally am reaching out to you. And I think it's so important in the day in which we live. You know, in Malachi chapter 4, the very last book of the Bible, every so often I'll mention it, but it bears mentioning. The very last verse of the Old Testament before there was 400 years of silence, before Jesus dawns, on humanity with the coming there in Bethlehem. But the very last verse of the Old Testament, Matthew chapter, Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Last verse. Last verse of the Old Testament. Then it's 400 years of silence. Why? Because God says, I'm going to raise up spiritual dads. Not just spiritual shepherds, which are pastors and apostles, and, but spiritual fathers in the home that are going to make a personal appeal. Because notice the wording that God gave to Malachi. I'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children. You know why some of these kids uh, you know, are you know, going berserk in the country? Because there's no one guiding them. There's no one personally appealing to them. There's no one writing them with large letters and saying, I care for you. So it doesn't matter if they're college-educated or in gangs, they don't have anyone guiding them. Paul was there to guide the church. Dad, you need to be there to guide your own family. Now, this isn't just for men. It isn't just for fathers. It isn't just for spiritual fathers. You might be the one that God wants to use, and it's for others as well. You as a grandmother are going to be called to be a personal appeal sometimes. By the way, sometimes... Uh, these little, you know, now they've kind of lost a couple inches. Older ladies, sometimes they can speak with more power than people that are 10 times their strength, right? Because it's spiritual strength. It's prayer power. Uh, you might be a grandmother guy. might want you to personally uh, appeal to someone. You might be a college student, and God will use you to reach another college student where he might not even, someone else might, make, might not make that connection, you could be a high school student. Boy, when there is a high school student on fire for Jesus, the world will see it because it will definitely stand out. You could be a, a brother. You could be a sister. You could be a friend from high school that got saved, and you're reaching back 40 years to someone to say, hey, I, we just connected on Facebook. This is what God's done in my life. Your personal appeal is necessary often. It's not just, well, I'll just let somebody else do it. You might be the one to, uh, instead of using a calamus, God may use your keystrokes. God may use your text. God may use your phone call. God may use a
you're right. You know, pray coming up. Uh, you know, it's not too far. Uh, Easter's April 16th this year. It's not that far away. Uh, the Resurrection Sunday, and and be praying already. Is there someone that God wants you to personally personally appeal to, to personally invite? To say, hey, I just want to invite you. I know that you don't normally go to church, but I just want to invite you to come and hear the greatest message ever told. Not my preaching. The one that's actually in the Bible. The vast majority of people that ever come to church, and I got saved at a church, and many of you did too. Most people, more people get saved at a church than any other place. People do get saved at water coolers. People do get saved on the street corner. People get saved in hotel rooms when they grab a Gideon's Bible and, wow, this is true, and that kind of stuff happens. But the vast majority get saved when the gospel is preached in a group setting and they respond to it. That's a fact. The vast majority of people that do. And the vast majority of people that ever come to a church, be, they get there because someone personally invited them. Not because there was a billboard when they're riding down Midlothian Turnpike. Although that can work, that doesn't work near as often as someone's saying at work, hey, I just want to invite you. Hey, can I pray for you? That kind of thing. That's the way the vast majority of people, the vast majority of people that Jesus transformed, he did it in a personal communication with them. He was talking to them, not some kind of uh, using, I'm going to be over here, and it's going to be on a widescreen. You'll be able to watch it over here. Personally connecting to people. Billboards and ads and mass mailings, they'll never replace personal appeal and personal interaction. And can I make one other personal appeal as we move on here? Um, you know, we've been talking about us being, we were doing this Friday night in the, uh, uh, the Friday night uh, home fellowship groups. And uh, it, was, it was wonderful. We had this Friday night over three locations. We had 44 adults attend. 44 adults over three locations. So some of your living rooms were packed. Thank you for squeezing in there. Uh, kids were probably like stomping upstairs and stuff. I, I know that that happens. It, but it's worth it because that's where we're going to grow. Uh, and even if you can't come to a Friday night fellowship, I, I appeal again. Men, come out to a men's study. We've got the, the bottom rowers won the second uh, if you can't come to that, come to a Friday morning men's study. We had 12 men Friday uh, at 7 a.m. meeting here at Dr. Russ's office at 6.30 a.m. on Tuesday. The ladies' prayer uh, or the ladies' study. Come to something where you actually get more iron sharpening iron, more one-on-one. The way Jesus met with the 12, right? He would actually go out, but he would always gather these groups of people together to do more personal discipleship. We need that fellowship. We need that discipleship to grow. And I would appeal to you personally to take a step you don't want to take. Almost anything valuable in life is things we don't usually want to do. I can look back and many times, the very things I didn't want to do, whether it was, I got to do this exercise, I got to eat less sugar, I need to go to do this, I need to go to a prayer meeting, I usually, my flesh doesn't want to do it. Every single time afterwards, I'm like, man, I'm glad I did that. You know, it's been well said. If it, you know, the things that are easy, if it's easy, it's probably not all that worthwhile. You ever opened up a box of Girl Scout cookies? <laughs> you ever looked at the serving size on the back? It says two of these minuscule things, right? And you're like, this isn't, this isn't possible because this sleeve can go in about 10 seconds, right? It's easy to down, and, that, and by the way, they'll be haunting you any day now out on the street corners because it's that season where girls get, I actually saw them set up outside the Walmart and I spotted them and I went the other direction because yes, thin mints are, they'll have a gravitational pull. It's easy to eat them, but it's harder to say no. And the things in life that take discipline, Paul was always telling the church, discipline yourself to do the things that God says will help you grow it's worth it. Let's take a look at the next uh, thing that he says. As many as, in verse 12, as many as desire to make a good show in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the uh, cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Here is Paul's reminder of the whole original intent of the letter. Look, the fact that you were saved by grace, you were walking and growing, and all of a sudden you've diverted to religiosity. You diverted to Christianese. And now uh, Christianese is a language where you actually speak spiritual things, but your heart 
isn't really walking in the Holy Spirit. But you know all the things to say. And that's what religion does. It's an outward, you know, remember the Pharisees on the outward, they looked so holy. Walking, and they would have, even have a way of walking, an austere look to them. A return to the law, a return to the Jewish ceremonial aspects given to Israel, the addition of uh, works-based approval rather than just the grace and the blood of Jesus, this was the core of the Galatians issue. And this is why Paul had sent them this urgent epistle. A return to the bondage and a return to the law and a return to legalism was what they were using to deceive the church, to deceive the church and directing them away from following Christ into following rules and regulations. A form of religion or godliness, it had become attractive to some in the church, and so no longer were they just walking in the simplicity of faith and in the finished work of Jesus, but now they were walking away from just being saved by grace alone. This is the whole reason Paul uh, is appealing to them. And Paul's reminding uh, the church in these closing words that the subversion of the gospel, where he says here, they desire to make that uh, they desire to make a good showing. Showing's a good word because it's kind of a show. That's what it is. It's kind of a show. It's hypocrisy. It's holiness on the outside, but they really weren't following Christ. As many as would uh, desire to subvert the gospel, it's always cloaked in some pseudo-righteousness. And it's always a departure from Jesus. Always a departure. Jesus will be minimized more and more out of the worship, more and more out of the teaching, more and more out of the preaching, more and more out of the study, and it'll, it'll come to something else. Here's how you'll be a better human being. Here's how you'll be helped instead of the sincere milk of the Word of God. And he says that uh, only they may not suffer persecution for the cross. Notice the wider implication there, that latter half of verse 12. Only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Paul's getting into the, at the deep-seated motivation of some of these deceivers. Everything that replaces the gospel... Every time the gospel is replaced, this will make you more accepted and more popular with men. Understand this. If you, want to, if you want to be a religious leader that is loved by Hollywood, all you have to do is replace Jesus. Don't change anything. Just replace Jesus and start teaching something else with the teaching. Add some law, add some works, Add some things that, uh, but just kind of get rid of Jesus and the speaking of it, and you'll be accepted by men. Problem is, you won't be accepted by God at that point. If you deny me before men, I'll deny me before the Father. That's what Jesus said. We can't deny and, and replace the essence of the gospel. See, the Roman government, the Roman government had become, a, com, had become completely okay with Judaism. And the Jewish synagogues, the Roman government actually had no issues with synagogues being built in every Roman city. Those of you that have been to uh, the Mediterranean, if you've been to Greece or you've been to modern Turkey or you've been to Israel, and we're, we're, by the way, we're planning a trip in 2019 to Israel, so start saving your pennies if you want to go. But you'll see Roman ruins, and wherever there's Roman ruins in the larger cities, there was typically a synagogue. Rome had no problem at that point at that point, they had even after the dispersion of the Jewish people, they would allow these uh, synagogues and didn't have an issue with Judaism itself. What really became a problem for Nero and the Roman leaders was Christianity, the preaching of the cross, the preaching of Christ, the preaching that men had to repent. And as long as the law was in play and people were following uh, the practice and the religious norms and the, and the ceremonial things, they didn't have an issue with it. But when Paul comes along and people repented and stopped just doing ceremonial things and started loving their neighbor as their self and sharing that repentance was required and that God gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, well, that caused a stir. And that was the preaching 
that was hated then and is hated in North Korea today, that is hated by ISIS today, that is hated around the world. It's the most glorious message of the world, and it's hated. And so Satan will say, I'll give you religion as long as you replace the gospel. And you won't have to suffer any persecution of the cross. No one will ever accuse you of anything that will be bothersome. But Jesus and the work of Calvary, the message of repentance and faith in Christ, that is the essence of what has to be always in our Bible studies, in our teaching, in our sharing, in our life. I share with the men Friday morning. We were having the men's study. I mentioned 7 a.m. Friday morning. And I, don't, I can't even remember who originated this statement. I just remember it's one of those ones that stuck with me. Like earlier, I remember Chuck Swindoll said that one that I mentioned. But whoever said this originally, I don't know. But it's so true. And uh, this was the quote that stays in my mind. If the gospel preached in many pulpits today was preached by Jesus, he would have never been crucified. If the gospel preached in many pulpits today was preached by Jesus, he would have never been crucified. Because there wouldn't have been any offense. The real cross brings an offense. The real cross brings a, div a, a divide. Uh, but it also pricks the heart, right? It also changes lives. Beware of hypocrisy and beware of false holiness and uh, religious denominational things and, uh, that will never bother anyone in the spirit and they'll never bother anyone anywhere. Uh, it's not going to be a problem. Satan doesn't care if people are active in the church. Matter of fact, Satan's good with people being active in the church. Satan's not bothered by denominations. Satan's not bothered if you go to a Calvary chapel or if you go to so-and-so Baptist church. He doesn't care about any of that. He's not bothered by charitable organizations as long as they've not been transformed by the blood of Jesus. And as long as the blood of Jesus is, is kind of screened out of the, of the whole equation, as long as that is muted, as long as his name is muted, Christianity without the cross is just a facade. It's just a facade. And Paul's saying, this is what you're, this Galatians, you've, you've replaced Christ with something else. And you might be doing a lot of the same stuff, but it's a facade. And by the way, deep down, the world knows the difference. They might act like they don't, but they do know the difference. Years ago, and I haven't told this in a while, I've told it probably, over the last 10 years, I've probably told it three or four times, but it bears telling again, because a lot of you are new. And I'll never forget, um, I hadn't been saved for all that long, but I was, you know, sharing the gospel with, with guys that I worked with or ex, you know, friends that started to drop out of my life quickly once I got saved. So I was living in South Florida, and I'd been bartending my way through college, and, and they, you know, I started sharing Jesus with them, like, whoa, whoa, you've, you've really changed a lot, and not for the good as far as we're concerned, right? But there was this one guy, uh, he was a real ladies' man, friend of mine, and he was all, you know, after I got saved, he'd like to tell about, hey, this is what I did this weekend. And he's about to say, hey, this girl. And I said, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear what you're about to say. No, 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 this is actually good. <laughs> all right, okay, go ahead and tell me. So he's like, no, he goes, uh, you know, I, I can't remember. He got off work late or she got off work late. But back in the early 90s, we didn't have Snapchat or text or even Blackberries or anything like that. You know, there was, there, there was none of that stuff. You had what was called a, a phone. And it had a cord on it. And our idea of mobility was how long the cord was. That was our idea of mobility. If your cord was long, you were mobile. If it wasn't, you were stuck beside the wall or whatever it was. And so if someone got off late and you were in love, you would get on the phone with them. And you would talk for nothing, about nothing for long periods of time. Kind of like texting about nothing for long periods of time. So... So he's like, yeah, I can't remember which one got off work, but got off work, either he got off work late or she was a waitress or something like this. We were all college age, and, and he's on the phone till like 2 in the morning with her, and then she's like, oh, i got to get off the phone. And he's like, why? She goes, tomorrow's Sunday. And he goes, so what? And she goes, well, i got to go to church tomorrow. He goes, why do you have to go to church? She goes, because I'm a Christian. He goes, hold on, hold on. He's on the other phone. This is not a way to stay dating her, but he said it unless he goes, I know a Christian, you're not one. He goes, you're definitely not a Christian, because I know one. <laughs> he, he was talking about me, because I had been, you know, I'd share my faith, and 
this was sin and you couldn't do this anymore. And she was kind of going along with anything he wanted to do, which was not biblical. And he, but he knew the difference. He's like, I never hear you talk about Jesus. I never hear you, you know, talk about this or do that. He goes, you're just like me. She did not. She got hot on the phone. Uh, how dare you tell me I'm not a Christian? You're not a Christian. He's like, I know I'm not a Christian, but I know you're not one either. So the world knows the difference. The cross makes it clear. Look at verse 14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Except in the cross. Paul said there's nothing else I can boast in but the cross. By whom the world has been crucified to me, and I the world. Paul said, I died to the world when I died at the foot of the cross. You know, the world has a lot of attractive things, no question about it. Money's attractive. Pleasure is attractive. Success is attractive. All those things are attractive. Anyone who says they're not is lying. I mean, they have an appeal. It can be as silly as a Girl Scout cookie and, and as expensive as an Alfa Romeo, Right? All those things, there's an appeal. that and I'm not saying that either are a sin. I'm not, that's not the point. I'm saying that we have an attraction to things that would keep us from the Lord. But Paul said, once I, once I surrendered to Jesus on the road to Damascus, once I gave my life to Christ, he said, I realized that I had to say goodbye to anything that would keep me from following Christ. And he was obviously called to be an apostle, but you're just called to be a light at your workplace. You, you, you're called to be a light at your family reunion. You're called to be a light uh, when you're driving down the highway and you want to explode, you can't anymore. Now, you, you might, you need to confess it, but you want to get to the place that you actually say, no, you can, you can have that space in traffic. Acting like you don't see them, right? <laughs> I don't see you. That's why I didn't let you. I didn't even see you. That's a lie. God sees you. You did see them. But you weren't going to give up that spot. God says, no, now I've changed you. You have to relent and say, die to the flesh and live to the spirit. But it's the cross that does that work, right? If we'd not been changed by the cross, we wouldn't be changed in traffic. We wouldn't be changed in the way we deal with our kids. We wouldn't be changed in the way we deal with our spouse. We wouldn't be changed in the way we deal with someone who's criticized us. We wouldn't be, we wouldn't be able to respond as Christ would. The cross does that work. The blood of Jesus does it. But we have to be uh, first surrendered to it, and then God says, now, now die to yourself and live through me. But it's the message of the cross. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the preaching of the cross to them is that perish is foolishness, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. The message of the cross offends people. They don't really like it, but it's what they need. I didn't really like it every time. When I used to go to Calvary Fort Lauderdale before I was unsaved, me and my wife would go, and we went with a whole group of kids. It was on, there was this show back in the early 90s called Melrose Place. You guys remember this? That was our apartment complex. It was in Miami, Fort Lauderdale, and it was just like Melrose Place. It was like a heathen haven. And, um, so we, but yet, someone invited us to church, and we would go, and our friends would come with us. We'd all get convicted, and we wouldn't come back for weeks. We'd go again, we'd get convicted, wouldn't come back for weeks. We'd go again, get convicted, and we're like, this someday has to stop. Either We either, we either kneel or stop coming. And it, the amazing thing is, me and my wife got saved, and all of our friends stopped going eventually. Although some of them may have gotten saved somewhere in the country. I don't know yet. Uh, I pray that they did. Actually, one is, and he's an assistant pastor uh, now in another church. So God got a hold of us, but it's the cross that did the work. And uh, let me read you a story. You guys have all heard of Napoleon, right? Um, you've heard of the Battle of Waterloo. And I want to read you this. It says, Wellington represented the last formidable opposition to the French army under the command of Napoleon. Everything came to a head on the battlefield of Waterloo. To communicate the outcome of the battle to the English towns from Belgium across the English Channel, a system of flashing lights was devised, which were to be emitted from the top of one church to the other churches. So they, the church, they had these tall steeples, so that's where they would use these flashing lights. Um, when the battle ended, England had proved victorious, and the message was sent, 
Wellington defeated Napoleon. As the message was received and sent by church to church towards the islands of Great Britain, the fog began to rise, and by the time the message reached the island, the fog cut the message short. As the British churches received the message, it said, Wellington defeated. For hours, the nation feared the eventual overthrow of their country until the fog lifted, and they had the complete message, Wellington defeated Napoleon. For anyone in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago during that Passover week, and then on that awful afternoon where Jesus hung and bled and died, to any onlooker that day, including those of his followers, it would have appeared in the minds of the apostles and the disciples, it would appear a message that would say, Jesus defeated. That's what they would have thought. But three days later, when he shattered sin and he shattered the grave, as nobody ever has before and nobody ever will again, the message was complete then, wasn't it? Jesus defeated death. And today, we're still only saved by the complete gospel. The churches there in England in 1815, that's when the battle took place, 1815, uh, they were actually communicating the full message with those flashing lights. But the fog was distorting the message, wasn't it? Today, churches are still supposed to shine the light of victory, aren't we? Individuals in the church are still supposed to shine the light of victory. We're to use the light of Christ to communicate the gospel, but it's not fog that's distorting the message in 2017. What is it? Today, many Christians and, in fact, many churches are willfully giving an incomplete message. They're willfully shining only half the message. Today, it's the fog of fear, deception, and wanting to be loved by the world that's allowing us to shine part of the message. Brother and sister, notice that even that it was the churches that were supposed to shine the message. We're still supposed to shine the whole gospel, and the whole gospel is a great message. It's called good news. You are lost, but Jesus has come to save you. But people, well, we can't tell anyone they're lost, so that'll offend them. Well, how bad do you think they'll feel when they die? Right? Real love warns. Warns and tells of victories, but it also warns of what's to come. And so Paul's like, look, I can't boast in anything else but the gospel. I can't boast in the fact that, hey, you know, I know a lot of stuff. The only thing I can tell people is Jesus died for me, and he died for you too. And he saved me from my sins. We can't shine a partial message. It has to be the heart of Calvary Chapel Richmond that we tell people the real gospel. No, we don't tell it and we don't say, you know, we're not telling, by the way, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. No. We say, look, I, I was once lost too. This is what Christ did for me. In 1 Corinthians 1.23, uh, Paul said, but we've preached Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness. See, the Greeks were really smart Super, you know, they had they had all the philosophers, and they thought that a God that would let his son be crucified, what kind of they they wanted gods like Zeus and Apollo, not a carpenter, not a carpenter who was you know pounded into a wooden cross. What kind of superhero god is that? Say so, no, 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 but you don't understand. This superhero defeated death. Zeus and Apollo aren't even real. They're not exist, right? Jesus is high and lifted up, but he had to humble himself to death first. And when we preach that message, at first a lot of times people are like, I don't understand any of this, but all of a sudden the Holy Spirit, by the way, the gospel is powerful not because you and I are good at explaining it. It's powerful because it's powerful. I don't even think I'm good at explaining it. I really don't. The longer I'm saved, the less I think I'm good at preaching the gospel, and I don't even care as much because I know it's powerful in and of itself. God doesn't need you and me to explain it to anyone. Just simply present it. Say, this is what Jesus did. This is what happened. This is what he did for me. If they say, well, that doesn't make any sense, fine. When they walk away, the Holy Spirit will start working on them, and you will be shocked. As I've been many times, 
Many times I'm like, really, you believe what I just said? I'm like, I'm surprised. <laughs> I really am. I'm like, I can't believe it. But then I start thinking, well, it's not really. It's, it's supernatural. It really happened. And that's why it really impacts people. 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is also in vain. If there's no cross and crucifixion, we're all wasting our time here Sunday morning. And I certainly am wasting an entire lifetime pastoring a church. And so it's either life-giving and liberating, and every church should shine that light from church to church, from city to city, from continent to continent, or then we might as well just kind of find something that allows everybody to say, well, this is acceptable. This will, this will be okay. Because really, as long as we just pacify each other, but God's not looking to pacify us. He's looking to save us, amen, and change us. And then lastly, what we close with, he wants to give us peace not only in the future, but right here today. Let's look at the last few verses, and we're closing here. Um, verse 16 and 17 and 18. And as many as walk according to this rule... Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now, interesting statement. Well, let me, I'll come back to that in a second. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Paul's saying, I want you to follow these things and be flooded with peace. Not be afraid of the Roman government. Not be afraid of the Judaizers. Not be afraid of, well, what if my neighbors think I'm weird? Paul's like, I want you to have the kind of peace and mercy and grace that Jesus is giving liberally to anyone who says, yes, Lord, I want to receive it. D.L. Moody said, a great many people are trying to make peace, but that has already been done. God has not left it for us to do, all we have to do is enter into it. You don't have to go buy peace. You don't have to try and figure peace out. You simply have to say, Jesus, I surrender all, and he will pour into us peace. It's the only way. There's not another solution. You'll never find it from the pharma companies making billions of dollars. You'll never find it from, well, if I did this specific workout and if I had this uh, special herb concoction which I'm not against. I've been like, I've been like downing uh, oregano oil the last week, uh, you know, like antibiotic, you know, that kind of thing. But I've been praying the whole time. But again, all these things, a massage won't do it. Aromatherapy won't do it. You realize that all of these things, people are trying constantly. That's why, I mean, our, our ancestors might not have envisioned, they ride down the road, what's a massage envy? You know, well, that... That's, that's to relieve stress. That's what the, we built those on every corner because that's what, uh, that's what that is. And, uh, well, what's this over here? Well, this, uh, you take this concoction, put it in a diffuser, and sit there with all the lights off. You will find peace, right? <laughs> well, this is meditation over here. This, you know, in every magazine, you stand on the news counter, and almost every magazine will have something about how you can rest and relax your mind and stuff like this. The end of March, I'm doing another fear, stress, worry, workshop on a Tuesday night here. I hope you'll come. If you struggle with any of these things, God wants you, trust me, he wants us all delivered from this stuff. He wants to give us peace that surpasses understanding. And he says, guess what? Mine is free. Free as in I paid for it at the cross. And all the other stuff, you can stop spending all your money on it. Jesus said, I will give it to you, lock, stock, and barrel. <coughs> Jesus has made the way. But it comes through, will we believe him and will we obey? That's what Paul said to the Galatian church. That's what he's saying to us. He said, Jesus said, just do what I've said. Pray. Follow me. Remember the cross. Next Sunday, we'll take the Lord's Supper. We'll never forget the cross here. We don't ever want to forget the cross because it's the key to why we've been saved. It's the heart of why we've been saved. And when I come back to the cross, I come back to my senses and every other spiritual realm where God is saying, oh, and this needs to tweak in your life, and this needs to tweak. But the cross is where we kind of really hear from the Lord. Remember when Moses was given uh, access to the Holy of Holies? He went into a place that was called the Holy of Holies, and there was what was called the Ark of the Covenant. And the blood had to be sprinkled on the Ark. Why? Because that was called the mercy seat. And when you come to the mercy seat, everything else in the universe calms down. 
and the blood is sprinkled, and God opens your mind and pours in the Holy Spirit, and then you realize, oh, it's all about grace, and I've received mercy. That's where God told Moses he'd have to keep coming back was the mercy seat. You and I, we do it in our personal prayer life. We do it and get on our knees. We do it and say, Lord, forgive me. I blew it. And God says, I know, but I'm going to give you mercy, and I'm going to give you grace. Well, what about these things that are making me anxious and bothering me? He says, press into me, and I will cause those to dissolve. Will it really work? Jesus said, try me now and see. It'll work. Amen? In John 15, 10, I'll close with this passage. I've been reading off and on back to John, referencing in the last you know, eight or nine weeks. Remember these words. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy may be what? Full. Paul's closing this letter and saying, look, you're not going to gain anything by walking away from Jesus and, and going back to law. But if you want peace, if you want grace, if you want joy, don't substitute the real thing. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we are so thankful this morning for your amazing grace. We're grateful that, Lord, you've given us not what we would have devised, not what we would have prescribed, but you've given us what we need, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You've given his blood, you've given the victory over the cross. Lord, the heart of our salvation is what Jesus did in those three days 2,000 years ago, and we just want to say thank you. And Lord, if anyone in here doesn't know the peace that passes understanding, has not received you as Lord and Savior, I pray that they would know that this is not my words. This is not my teeth. This is exactly what you delivered to the church 2,000 years ago. And it's the same message of light that you want us to shine forth today. And Lord, those of us that know you, we would, if we've kind of wandered away and we've taken on some of the attitudes of the day, that we would just come back to the foot of the cross and be recentered in the heart of our salvation, and that we'd receive your mercy and your grace and your peace. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.